so hello everyone, my name is David, I know quite a few of you, and those of you who don't know me should be able to hear from the way that I speak that I'm not a native of the United States. I come from England, uh, from Britain, and I've lived in the States now for about eight years, spent a lot of time in Washington DC and in Seattle, but I've spent most of my time uh, here in sunny San Diego. Uh, Important things to know about me, I have a blog. I've run this blog now for about seven years, and I've written on, well, a lot of topics. I often joke that uh, I really have a blog just because it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but right primarily, I write on sacred scripture, apologetics, so defense and the belief of God, in Christianity, in the Catholic Church, and pro-life apologetics. But I also write about church history, and that's going to be my subject for tonight. All right. This is my parish. This is Holy Angels Byzantine Catholic Church. So, in case you're unaware, within the Catholic Church, there are a number of rites. The largest of which is the Roman Rite, which I'm sure virtually all of you here belong to. But there are other rites, and my parish is a Byzantine Rite parish. Now, we still share the same Eucharist. We are in communion with the Pope. We are still Catholic. But our theological expression is a little bit different. And our Sunday liturgy looks and sounds a little different. I actually took this one on Sunday. And if you've never visited an Eastern Night Parish, I would thoroughly recommend it. And I mean, even, please consider this an invitation to visit my parish. Right. Because I think it's really good when Roman Rite Catholics get to visit an Eastern Rite Church. Because it can dispel the strange notion that within the Catholic Church there's just sort of a stale uniformity. Whereas in the Eastern Church you get to see the, the great diversity uh, within the Church and the full beauty uh, found in Catholicism. Is that the church up on 805? Yes. Sarah Mesa. Everyone thinks it's a mosque. I can assure you it is a Catholic church. Oh, dear. Uh, but before I go any further, we should pray. And so I'm going to pray using a prayer which is part of the Eastern Liturgy, the Byzantine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, that I pray every week. So if you please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, Everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within our hearts, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. St. Ignatius of Antioch, pray for us. St. Justin Martyr, pray for us. St. Hippolytus of Rome, pray for us. All you angels and saints, pray for us. Tonight, we're going to be talking about church history. And this is a subject which I find fascinating. But unfortunately, it's also a subject around which there are an awful lot of misconceptions. I've had people tell me that the only thing we possibly know about the early church is what we find in the Bible. And I've had people tell me that we can't know what happened in those early centuries. And some people go a step further and like to imagine these strange, esoteric rituals performed by the early church, utterly foreign to modern Christianity. Hmm. But the thing is, that's not true. Uh, we actually know an awful lot about the early church. Now, we don't know as much as we would like to know, and that's for a few reasons. Firstly, antiquity. It happened a long time ago. Secondly, persecution. The early church was a persecuted minority. Firstly, from the members of the synagogue, then from their local pagan neighbors, and then eventually with the full weight of the Roman government. And lastly, the discipline of the secret. Early Christians were somewhat tight-lipped about speaking what, about what happened at their gatherings. They didn't like sharing what happened in their assemblies with those who weren't baptized. And as you can imagine, these issues, it makes the job of historians harder. But having said that, we still know a considerable amount about both what the early church believed and about how they practiced their faith. And I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. We're going to be looking at this document a little later, but I'd like to give you a bit of an idea as to the strange things that Christians would do and say when they gathered. 
Now, I'm going to read the leader's part, and let's try this. If you think you know what the response is going to be, just call it out. Okay? The sure. Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. So, now, as Nancy was saying earlier, theology on tap is for younger Catholics. Theology uncorked is for older Catholics. But I don't think any of you have been around since the early third century. But from this, we can see that perhaps the early church wasn't as strange and as alien as some people might imagine. And actually, modern Christianity is much closer to the church of antiquity than some people might imagine. So, my goals for tonight, I don't want tonight to simply be a history lesson. Honestly, if you just leave here tonight with a few more historical facts, I'm gonna regard myself as a bit of a failure. I have a few goals instead. What I would like is that by the end of tonight, that we would all have a renewed appreciation and sensitivity to the liturgy that's celebrated in our own parishes. I'm a cradle Catholic. Are most of you cradle Catholics as well? Yeah? Now you see, that's a wonderful blessing. But there is also a danger for those of us who have been brought up in the church that we grow insensitive and dull to the liturgy that when we experience it week after week after week. And so my hope is that by spending this time studying the early church, looking at the early liturgies and seeing its organic development through time, that we would become sensitive to the liturgy again and really engage in it. Also, I hope that we have a better appreciation for our forefathers in the faith. We're going to be reading the writings of some of the very first Christians who ultimately pass the faith on to us, and who help shape the liturgy that we ourselves experience today. And ultimately, what is the point of liturgy? What is, what is this ultimate end? Growth in love of Christ, His Church, and the Eucharist, the bread of heaven. So here's how I'm hoping to structure tonight. I'm going to begin with a little presentation. It's going to be about 20 minutes long, and I'm going to focus on the first century on the transition from Judaism to Christianity. And then I'm going to look at what worship looked like for a Christian at the end of the first century. Then we're going to begin a much more interesting part of the night. Because I don't want tonight to be all about my speaking. I mean, I may have a nice accent, and I do. <laughs> but what I would really, really like to do is spend the time looking at some of these ancient documents together and discussing them. I don't know about you, I much more enjoy talks that are much more interactive. And related to that, if you have any questions at any point, please just wave your hand. I'm going to be covering a lot of material tonight. I'm going to be touching on lots of different things. So if something particularly interests you, please just stop me and we'll talk about it for a little bit. And likewise, if something needs clarification, uh, please just stop me and I will have another go at trying to translate it into American. <laughs> so this talk is about worship in the early church, but we can't really talk about worship in the early church until we discuss the, the state of religious devotion in Israel at the time of Christ. And that's because Christianity didn't just pop into existence. It was born within Judaism. And, and Honestly, I've got another talk where I talk about the Jewish roots of the Eucharist and the Mass, and that's a talk in and of itself. I'm not going to do it justice here tonight, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to just address three particular features of Jewish religious devotion uh, in the first century. Oh, I'd love to come back and do that other talk. But I'm going to look at the uh, Kabbalah Fellowship. I, some people pronounce it Shabbat, but the Kabbalah Fellowship the total sacrifice, and the Seder meal. So let's look at each of those in turn. The Kabora Fellowship was a solemn weekly fellowship. Uh, Christ would almost certainly have participated in this. And it was on the Saturday Sabbath, and it took place in the home. However, don't think that it was 
immensely informal. There was, there was still a liturgy involved. There was a blessing over bread and wine, and there were prescribed prayers. Here's one of the prayers. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> Sorry, I don't do rhetorical questions. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Okay, so what does that sound like? <laughs> yeah, it, it, the preparation of yes, the priest says, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness we have this bread to offer, this wine to offer, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. And there's a reason that that sounds familiar. Question. Christianity comes from Judaism. Yes. Um, that passage mm -hmm. is in the Vatican, the post-Vatican II Mass, but not in the pre-Vatican II Mass. Is that in a similar form in the Byzantine liturgy? Um, uh, Marta, I, I recognize Fruit of the Vine, Blessed are You, and variations on King of the Universe. Yes, it is very similar to what he says if you're setting up close and you can hear him. Ah, it's, just, it's, one of the, it's one of the quieter prayers. Yeah. There you Thank go. You. And a lot of, this is definitely a, a separate topic that I'm not going to prod too much, but a good deal of the reform that happened at the Second Vatican Council the, the, the call was ad fontes, to the sources. Let's return to the early church and see what we might have lost along the way and to try and rediscover um, and reincorporate some of those things in the liturgy. So the Last Supper was like a Seder meal? We're going to get to that. That's, oh, okay. that's, that's number three. Now, yeah. did this kind of, when, when it, Christianity came on the scene, did this kind of fold into what became known as the Agape meal, which took place Saturday evening prior to... We're going, to get, we're going to get to the Garpe very shortly, but yes. And this, this is my main point in talking about the state of Judaism in the first century, because this, this is the environment in which the church was born. And the, the, the apostles and the disciples, they didn't just start with a blank piece of paper. They were coming from Jewish roots. The Messiah had come, and they were now living out the fullness of, of, of what God had now revealed. <coughs> another question? No. Oh. So that was the Kabbalah Fellowship. Now, the total sacrifice. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that there were all of these different kinds of sacrifices. And the total sacrifice was a thanksgiving sacrifice. It was thanksgiving for the aversion or the salvation from some form of calamity. Likewise, it was liturgical. It was about bread and wine that was shared with friends and family. And, once again, there were prescribed prayers. And these prayers were based around some psalms. Psalm 22, that begins, Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? On the cross. On the cross, when Jesus is offering his body and blood in sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of all mankind. Another one of the Psalms was 116. I will lift the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Where do you see this happen? Has anyone seen this happen this week? And we've gone to daily mass and seen the priest lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now what I find fascinating about the Toda sacrifice is what the rabbis say about it in the commentary. So the Talmud is rabbinic commentary on Hebrew history, scripture and law. And the rabbis said that when the Messiah came, all the Mosaic sacrifices would come to an end except one. <coughs> Do you want to have to guess which one was going to continue? Oh, that one. Oh, that one, exactly. Everything except the Toda sacrifice would cease, but the Toda sacrifice would continue. And this becomes even more significant, significant to us when we realize that Toda literally means thanksgiving. In Greek, Eucharistia, which is where we get the word Eucharist from. So to recap, the rabbi said that when the Messiah came, the Mosaic sacrifices would cease, except the Eucharistia, which would continue in perpetuity. Is this sounding familiar? It's for the very simple reason that Christianity comes from Judaism. The last one, the Seder meal. This, was, this meal was central to the Passover. So what was the Passover? What was that commemorating? Exodus from Egypt. Exodus from Egypt. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and 
Moses leads them out. You've seen the movie. Charlton Heston takes them across the Red Sea. This is what the, uh, the, the Passover was about. And the central part of it was the Seder meal. I thought that was Moses, not Charlton Heston. <laughs> and not in the movies and Okay. <laughs> Once again, this was a liturgical celebration. Have any of you attended a Seder? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. I, at my school, when I was 10, 11, we celebrated the Seder. And it has prescribed roles. It has a script. Typically, the, uh, the, you sing the Halal Psalms, a particular set of the Psalms. And the youngest child will ask a series of questions. Why is this night different from every other night? And the father also has an important role. He offers a blessing over food. Would you like to hazard a guess as to what the food is? Bread and wine. Again, this is, this is, you're seeing a pattern here. And once again, we go back to the Talmud to see what the rabbinic commentary says about the Seder meal. And again, it's fascinating. The rabbi said that it's not even, for, for the subsequent generations, for those who grew up in Israel, when it comes time to celebrate Passover, they are experiencing the salvation that God won for them. Even in scripture, it says, this is the night when you were brought out of Egypt. There was this idea that even though you might have been born hundreds of years after the Exodus, you too, as you participated in the Seder meal, you too were liberated from slavery. You mystically participated in that historic event. So Catholics, does that sound familiar? Mystically participating in a previous event, a, a saving event. It's because Christianity comes from Judaism. So, oh, yes. Just a comment. Um, so my family has a Seder meal every year on Holy Thursday. Mm -hmm. And it's not just bread and wine. It's, it's, it's not just bread and wine, but I, that's the, the thing you're going to be talking about is <laughs> my other talk of the Eggs and horse yeah. <laughs> with, 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 the, uh, with the, the lamb. And, and of course, At, Eucharist is the feasting on the, of the lamb of God. Absolutely. As I was saying just before, it's like trying to, trying to draw some parameters around all the things that I want to talk about. <laughs> so that was the Kibora Fellowship, that was the Toad Sacrifice, and the Seder Meal. But of course, everything changes at the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Seder Meal, but it was transformed by Christ. Two reasons. He was the first person after he blessed the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body. He was the first person to ever do that. He was the first person to take the cup and say, this is my blood. He was transforming the Seder into something else. And as he said these words, this is my body, this is my blood, his disciples will be remembering what happened a year before at the previous Passover in Capernaum. When the crowds had come, and Jesus had given that hard saying, he said, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. And now here they are in the upper room, and he's saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Transforming the Seder meal into something much more. But he transformed it in another way, because when he came to the cup, he said, this cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. In the same way that this is my body, this is my blood, would have reminded the disciples of what he had said the year before. As soon as they heard this is the new covenant, bells were ringing in their heads. Because they knew that the, pro the prophets had been promising this for years. They had been saying that there would come a time when God would make a new covenant with his people, a better covenant. This covenant, God wouldn't just write the law onto tablets of stone in Moses. He'd write it on the human heart. He'd pour out his spirit. There would be forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus said, do this in memory of me. So this is our hinge from Judaism into Christianity. And we're now going to be looking at what the first Christians did to fulfill the Lord's command to do this in remembrance of him. So we, yes. One thing, a comment in particular. I think sometimes people get this misconception that the relationship between Christianity and Judaism is one of abandonment, mm -hmm. 
where it's actually one of fulfillment. There's a difference between fulfilling something and, or transforming something and completely abandoning it. Now, maybe in a practical sense, some of the <coughs> mosaic laws were abrogated and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think understanding that distinction as something that's uh, as a transformation or as a fulfillment uh, can help understand the relationship between Judaism and Christianity and the Old and the New Testaments. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Christ said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of, these, all of the things that happened in the Old Covenant were to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. Yes? Of the, the three uh, Jewish ritual meals, obviously the Seder meal is still practiced. Are the other two practiced in a similar form or the same form today? I think or? it's a variation still of the Kabora. Um, I don't think the Toda. Don't quote me on that one. So we now come to the first century Christianity. So the first Christians didn't build churches for a few reasons. They are, well, it's expensive. But also, they're a religious minority. So it didn't really pay to get a nice building, put up a big spire, and put on a sign and say, hey, we're all in here. That's, that, that's, that's not going to work very well. So instead, they met in one another's homes. Um, and typically, they'll meet in the home of the richest member of the congregation, because they have the biggest house, and could therefore accommodate the most, most people. One thing that we often, it's very easy to, to misconstrue when we talk about house churches. Again, it wasn't that everything was just immediately informal because it was in the home. We've seen in the Jewish liturgy, some of these happened in the home, but there was still a liturgy, there was still an order. And the early church was no different, and they also gave their best. In the, about, I think, 303, we've got the records of, from the Romans of what they seized at one of these house churches. And they'll list all of the magnificent candelabra that had been incorporated in their worship. And as an aside, there was also a massive pile of clothes. It turns out that the church in question had been having a clothing drive to clothe the poor. So they met in their churches, well, they met in their homes. Um, but what did they actually do? Well, if you were a Christian at the end of the first century, you would have most likely participated in three liturgical celebrations. The Synaxis on Saturday night, Sunday morning, the Eucharist, and then Sunday evening, the Agape meal. So, let's look at each of those in turn. Synaxis, this literally means meeting. What progressively happened was Christians were pushed out of the synagogues as it became harder and harder for them to participate in the liturgical life of Israel. Eventually, it was demanded that if you were attending, you had to curse the Nazarenes, for example. And no Christian. Nazarenes was an early name for Christians. And obviously, a Christian couldn't do that. So as they were gradually pushed out of the synagogue, all the Christians did is reproduce the synagogue liturgy in their own homes, but with some tweaks. They were now Trinitarian, Christological, Messianic. Because what the synagogue hoped for, the Christian church proclaimed as having been fulfilled. The Messiah had come, and God had he'd, he'd, he'd redeemed his people. And this is what they celebrated. So this is the structure of the Synaxis. There was a greeting and response. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. Let's try that again. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And then there will be readings. So these will be readings from the Old Testament prophets. There will be some psalms. And the church would read whatever epistles and gospels they, they possessed. So, for example, what epistle do you think the Romans might have had? The epistle of the Romans. The Galatians? They, well, let's read some of that letter from St. Paul telling us what terrible, terrible people we are. <laughs> and they would read whichever gospel or gospels they had. And this was really important, because this is how people learn scripture. It's very easy for us to think anachronistically. The fact that all of you can read is quite incredible, at least in terms of the, in, in terms of the ancient world, where it wasn't usual for everyone to be able to read. So how you learn scripture is, well, how you can learn it today in the liturgy. Because this is its heart, this is where it lives, this is its home. And so this is where people 
became familiar with sacred scripture. Now I said there would be readings from the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, but there would also have been readings, most likely, from non-canonical works, works that didn't ultimately make it into the Bible. It's not that they were heresy, they were just deemed not scripture. So in a little bit we're going to read from the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch, one of my favorite church fathers. And so he would sometimes read in liturgy. There was a, another work called The Shepherd of Hermas that was also wildly popular in the early church. And remember I said that you know, the church in Rome would read their Roman letter and Galatians would read theirs. And even churches would share, they would copy out letters that they had to share with other churches. Well, the church in Corinth also had a letter from Clement. We know in the second century the bishop of uh, the church of Corinth called Dionysus he wrote that they were still reading the epistle of Clement in their liturgy. So Clement was one of the successors to St. Peter. So in Rome you had Peter, Linus, Cletus, and then Clement. So the Church of Corinth had written to Rome to ask them to help out with a bit of an issue they were having. So some young upstarts had kicked their clergy out, and they had taken over the church. And so they wrote to Rome to ask them to help them out. And Clement writes this letter back. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's full of authority, but very pastoral, very gentle. And he exhorts them to, to love and to humility, and ultimately to reinstate their clergy. And this was ultimately well received by the Corinthians, because still in the following century, they were reading it in their own liturgy. So, greeting and response, readings. There would then be a homily by the bishop. We'll see a little later that the bishop is utterly central in the early church. He's still very important today, but you really get the, get the sense of the importance of the bishop. Now, one thing that's interesting that we find in the first century, um, actually no, let's skip that. Then we went on to the dismissal of the catechumens. So after the homily had finished, anyone who wasn't baptized, so the catechumens, people who studied to be, to be baptized but not yet baptized, they were escorted out of the assembly by the deacons. And this is when the church prayed. Finally, there was a dismissal. What does this look like to you? What did you have the word? Later in history, this would be joined to the Eucharist to give our modern mass. Speaking of which, the Eucharist, Thanksgiving. No, they, they, would have, they would have still had catechesis. Okay. So if somebody would still wanted to come into the church, they would, they would still be taught the faith. But it's the idea that the scriptures, because books are amazingly expensive, and not everyone can read, the, the liturgy is still the core place you'd go to learn faith. Yes. And how did somebody become a bishop? As in, so they would... The bishop, you said the bishop was there. They would receive holy orders, and ultimately, they would, when the previous bishop died, there would usually be election and the new bishop. How did the bishops start? How did we get bishops? Oh, so the bishops are the successors ultimately to the apostles. So as, as the apostles um, went around founding churches, the person who led the congregation was typically a bishop. You see a little bit of transition in the, in, in the first century to what we call monarchical bishops. The idea that in one city you have one bishop who is surrounded by a team of presbyters and a team of deacons. That develops very rapidly in the first century. So in the Eucharist, if you were going to celebrate the Eucharist, you got up early. You got up before dawn. So there's none of this midday mass nonsense. <laughs> if you were in the early church, you were tough. Because you'd go, to, you'd, go, you'd go and celebrate the Eucharist early in the morning, and then you'd have to go to work. Because you're still living in the first century, in pagan, uh, the, the pagan Roman Empire. And so you still have work to go to. But what was the structure of the Eucharist? There was a greeting and response. The Lord be with you. And with the Spirit. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> There was then a kiss of peace. It's a little earlier than we have it today. I like it here. Yeah. I think it makes more sense. There was then an offertory, as we have, where the deacons would bring up the bread and wine which people brought from their homes. The Eucharistic prayer would be said by the bishop. And the interesting thing here is that we know that in the early days, 
the bishop had a little bit more leeway. There were set prayers, absolutely. But if he was gifted in extemporaneous prayer, in off-the-cuff prayers, he would spend some time praying off-the-cuff. Well, the other thing that's interesting about the, uh, the Eucharistic prayer is in the first century, as far as we can tell from the sources, there was no institution narrative. When you go to Mass, the priest will say, on the night before he suffered, he took the bread, he took the cup. The Last Supper will be narrated to you by the priest. In the first century, that doesn't appear to happen. The bishop gives uh, a thanksgiving, uh, a thanksgiving prayer, much in the same way that Christ would have, or in those earlier Jewish liturgies. There would then be communion, and then a dismissal. Looks very similar to what you experience in Mass on Sunday. So lastly, the agape. So you went to the Eucharist in the morning, you went to work, and then at the end of the day, you would typically gather, say, a, a precipice house. This was a fellowship meal, much like the Kabora that we looked at in Judaism. Now, we actually know from Scripture, if you look in 1 Corinthians 11, it appears that the Agape and the Eucharist were originally attached to each other. Um, but by the end of the first century, they've definitely become separate liturgies. Possibly because of the various issues and abuses that St. Paul was having to deal with with the Corinthian church. People getting drunk and stuff. Now, the structure varied a little bit, depending on if you were in the eastern end of the empire, or the western. But it broadly looked like this. Introductory prayer, there was blessing of food, there was then a communal meal. There was a ceremonial washing of hands. Then the deacon would bring in a lamp, which would be blessed by the bishop. In a few months, we're going to have the Easter Vigil. And we're going to have something that looks very similar. The deacon is going to process in with a paschal candle uh, to bring the light of Christ into the church. There were psalms and hymns, and then the bishop blesses a cup, and he presses some bread and distributes it, and then everyone goes home. But the agape eventually died out. It didn't last too long, the first few centuries, and then it rapidly starts uh, losing its appeal. Various Christian groups have tried to revive it, and some, some ecclesial communities do have something that's somewhat similar to this. So hopefully you can see how the synaxis and the Eucharist eventually came together form the Mass which you experience today. And the point in saying all of this, Christianity was Jewish. It's worth remembering that it took a good 10 years before the first Gentiles entered the church. We read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. Does anyone know which apostle brought in the first Gentiles? Peter. Peter. So Paul is often described as apostle to the Gentiles, but it was actually Peter who brings in the household of Cornelius into the church. And we read that the first Christians, they still went to the temple. They still tried to go to the synagogue. But then they would go into their homes for the breaking of bread, celebrating the Eucharist. But there was a growing divide. And this really comes to a head in about AD 70, when the temple is destroyed. And the differences between Christianity and Judaism become very obvious. But what we see is Jewish prayers rapidly making their way into the Christian liturgies. Like I said, they didn't start with just a blank page. And so we see the prayers from the house liturgies, from the synagogue, from the temple, making their way into Christian liturgies. And if you look at the Mass today, you can see the evidence of it everywhere. You, we, we have an Alleluia, we have Psalms, the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 or in Hebrew, the Kadosh. There are refrains, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everything culminates for us at Mass with the great Amen. So I hope what you're seeing from this is that Judaism was the basis for Christianity. And it really prefigured and helped shape the worship of the early church. <coughs> Any questions before we move on to the fun bit? Why did the Agape meal die out? Have you ever tried to order a, organize a potluck? <laughs> <laughs> Is that enough? <laughs> yes. I, it's logistically harder. It's far easier for there to be social issues. And read 1 Corinthians 11. See, read what Paul had to deal with. That's just gonna, it's just going to get harder over time. Also, particularly as the church is growing. You know, it, it's, it's one thing having a potluck for a handful of yeah, five friends. When your numbers start increasing, it can start actually getting harder. Is coffee and donuts a version of the agape? <laughs> <laughs> 
very, very, very loosely. <laughs> No, they did that once a year. Yeah. The Christian conception is that we celebrate Pascha, Easter, once a year. Mm -hmm. But every Sunday is a little Pascha, it's a little Easter. Because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. So, now let's... Yeah, one question. So, we're, we're continuing our education here on how, you know, Judaism uh, transformed to our Christianity as we know it today. In this country and in many parts of the world, what, they don't understand this and there's this anti-Semitism thing? I mean, I don't want to get off on a whole discussion of that, but I mean, Catholics seem to get this, but maybe our Protestant brothers don't or something? I don't know. I, I, I think from history, you could say a lot of people haven't got this. Uh, is it Pius? One of the Piuses, I think. Well, he said spiritually we are all Semites. We what now? Spiritually we are all Semites. Yeah, I think okay. it was the 11th. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So it just really, really confounds me, you know, how, how we can have this. And it, and it becomes very clear when you look at the look at the development of liturgy, mm -hmm. where we come from. Yeah. Abraham is our father too, our father in faith. Yeah. But our Christian brothers and sisters don't have the Eucharist, and so it's possible that as that, mm. you, when they lost that, they also lost some appreciation for the. There's certainly that liturgical sensitivity. That I think in the Protestant world, in terms of uh, the place that Jews have, kind of speaking generally here, but there either seems to be, you know, a complete dismissal or kind of a real hyper kind of sense of you get like in the evangelical world where they, you know, their recognition of the state of Israel is, has stronger theological significance among some evangelicals than it would say among, well, as Catholics, it's okay to recognize it as a legitimate secular state, but it doesn't, that it's not, the new Israel, as far as Catholics are concerned, is the church. Absolutely. And that's, and and that's ultimately our focus. That's you know, so, the, the, the church but just, to, just to kind of footnote that comment. So let's, remember I said ad fontes, let's go to the sources. And so we're going to read some of the some of the writings about the early liturgies. And as we do this, we're going to move through the early centuries of the church and move from the assemblies in Antioch, ultimately to the mass of Rome. So we're going to begin with probably my favorite early church father. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He was bishop of Antioch. He was a disciple of St. John. And he was arrested in the year about 107 under the emperor Trajan. And he was condemned to die and taken to Rome in chains. Fortunately for us, he wrote some letters as he was traveling to St. Polycarp, another of my favorites, who um, was a fellow bishop. And he also wrote to Rome because he was afraid that some of the high-ranking Christians there might manage to interfere with his baptism. Not his baptism, his baptism in blood, his martyrdom. And he also wrote to some other local churches. And that's what we're going to look at now. Could I have a reader, please? Somebody with a nice, strong, centurion voice. All right. Thank you. <laughs> the heretics abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father, in his goodness, raised up again. So remember, this is AD 107. You don't have to wait for Constantine to become emperor and pollute Christianity with all these crazy pagan ideas. Here in 107, we have a very clear attestation to the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. He says, the heretics, they abstain from our Eucharist because they don't believe that it's Jesus' body and blood. Now, the heretics he's referring to here are they have a group called the Docetists. And they had a few issues. But their major one was not that they denied Jesus' divinity. They denied his humanity. They denied he had a body. And just think of the consequences of that. If he didn't have a body, that means he wasn't really born from woman. He didn't really live as we did. He wasn't nailed to a cross. He wasn't bodily resurrected. And therefore, what those Catholics are eating in their Eucharist definitely can't be his body and blood. 
You want to line go If you're continuing. Oh, see that you follow the bishop even as Jesus Christ follows the Father. Follow the priests as you would follow the apostles. And reverence the deacons as you would reverence the command of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the assembly also be, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Apart from the bishop, it is not lawful to baptize or to celebrate an agape, but whatever he shall approve is pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. So like I said, I want to spare a little bit of a discussion. Is there anything that jumps out at you here, or any particular questions you have? Yes. Is that the first use of the term Catholic Church? It is indeed. It's the first, the first surviving record we have of somebody that's describing the church as the Catholic Church. Uh, and notice how he's using it. It's, he's not presenting anything new. He's presenting it with a very Pohan attitude. Oh, and there is the Catholic Church. So the term, although we've got it recorded in 107, it was no doubt older. Is he using the term not in opposition to, like we would, the Catholic Church versus the Protestant Church? He's using it, the Catholic Church as opposed to simply the local church. Um, I would say the Catholic Church as opposed to the heretics, like the Docetists. The church that is universal, the faith that is proclaimed everywhere and openly. Yeah, we have to be a little careful about not being too anachronistic on reading in our divisions, our present-day divisions. Well, that's what I mean. Because Catholic as opposed to local, because you have local, you have the Catholic Church being, you know, thinking of it as a global, mm -hmm. rather than simply the church in San Diego. Yeah. In the early church, they understood it in both ways. You talk here about the church in Smyrna, but it's the Catholic church in Smyrna, the church that is universal with the, with, through the network of bishops and through the publicly proclaimed apostolic faith. Perhaps it would be well to just briefly explain what the word Catholic means. Catholic and holos. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Uni universal and whole. Um, and you see how important Ignatius sees the bishop. It's the bishop, it's through the bishop that you have unity, and through him you have safety. And he is the one who, um, it's through him that you celebrate the Eucharist, uh, an agape, uh, baptism. Notice he says, or to one to whom the bishop, what does it say, to whom the bishop has entrusted it. Why would the bishop entrust the Eucharist to somebody else, one of his presbyters? What do you think might be the reason for that? He's ordained to do so. True. But the need for it is the church is growing. Sociologist Rodney Stark says that in the early church, they grew at about the rate of 40% a decade. Think about your parish growing by a little under half every 10 years. So as the church is growing, you need more people because you're having, you're now filling up house churches. So you need somebody else to be able to celebrate the liturgy. you happy who are so joined to your bishop as the church is to Jesus Christ, and as Jesus Christ is to the Father, that so all things may agree in unity. Let no man deceive himself. If anyone be not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two poses such power, how much more that, that of the bishop and the whole church, he, therefore, who does not assemble with the church, thus has manifested his pride and condemned himself. So if you ask Ignatius, why should I have to go to Mass? He says, well, if you don't go, you've manifested your pride and condemned yourself. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, in the earlier slide, he spoke of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Here, he speaks of it as a sacrifice, because the only thing you offer on all time is a sacrifice. I think we've got time for Justin Martha, and then I'll wrap things up. So Justin, he was a Samaritan. He was a pagan. But he searched for truth. And he began searching for truth in the different philosophical schools that were around him, the Pythagoreans and the Platonists. But ultimately, he came to discover what he called the true philosophy, Christianity. And when he was in Rome, he would still wear his philosopher's garb because he still thought of himself as a philosopher. He had just found the true philosophy. He was also a martyr. So martyr isn't his last name. It's not like Bates. Because if it was, his parents were setting him up something wrong. <laughs> um, and we're about to read his first apology. 
which he wrote to the Emperor Antoninus Pius. Remember I said about the discipline of the secret? One of the unfortunate side effects from that is pagan gossip. What are those Christians doing behind those closed doors? Mm. There were rumors of incest and orgy and cannibalism. You mentioned coffee and donuts after mass. I mean, you obviously know the kinds of things that they're imagining. So Justin writes to the emperor and explains what Christians believe and what Christians do. Can I have another speaker, please? Before I pick somebody. I'll do it. This food we call Eucharistia, the Eucharist, and no one is allowed to partake, but he who believes that our doctrines are true, who has been washed with the washing for the remission of sins and rebirth, and who is living as Christ has enjoined. We do not receive these as common bread and drink, for Jesus Christ, our Savior, made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. Likewise, we have been taught that the food blessed by the prayer is the flesh and blood of Jesus, who was made flesh. The apostles, in the mem memories, or, or would that be memoirs? Memoirs. Okay. They composed, called the Gospels, have passed on to us what, had, what was enjoined upon them, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, said, do this in memory of me, this is my body. In the same way, after taking the cup and giving thanks, he said, this is my blood. So Justin explains why we do what we do. Jesus told the apostles, and the apostles told us. And again, you have this attestation of the real presence of Jesus. It's not just common food and drink. It's Jesus' flesh and blood. And one of the things that Catholics are often criticized for is the fact that we don't have open communion. Not anybody can just come and receive. But if you look at what Justin describes, they didn't in the early church either. And if you actually look at his conditions, they bear a remarkable similarity to what we have today. You can receive the Eucharist, those who believe that our doctrines are true. So if you give assent to the Catholic faith, the entirety of Catholic faith. Those who have been washed with the washing for the remissions of sin and rebirth. What's that a reference to? Baptism. And who is living as Christ has enjoined. I'd interpret that as living free of mortal sin. So the early church also took the reception of Holy Communion very seriously. Great. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the countryside gather together in one place. And the memories of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. What, what does that sound like? Old Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament, the Gospels. Uh -huh. Then, when the reader has finished, the president instructs and exhorts them to the imitation of these good things. What do we call that? Homily. Okay. Then we all rise together and pray. And, as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine with water are brought forth and the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings, according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each of the Eucharistic elements. The deacons carry a portion to those who are absent. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this basically a description of what you, what you see on Sunday? Mm -hmm. You see prayers and thanksgiving. You see that the... Uh, there's still a little bit of extemporaneous prayer allowed if there's time, and if the bishop is gifted. Uh, people say amen, they receive the elements, and the deacons carry the Eucharist to those who are absent. You remember Ignatius said, you know, if you don't turn up the Mass, you condemn yourself? Well, these are people who are sick, housebound, uh, and don't forget, we're living in an age of persecution. People come to prison, so the Eucharist was smuggled in. <coughs> Uh, okay. We hold our assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God brought forth the world from darkness and matter. On the same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before Saturn's day. And on the day of the sun, he appeared to his apostles. 
and disciples and taught them these things, which we have submitted to you for your consideration. So this is where Justin explains why we worship on Sundays. Has anyone met a Seventh-day Adventist? Now they say, no, you should be worshipping on Saturday. Justin explains why that isn't the case. You don't worship on, on, you don't worship on Saturday, you worship on Sunday, because that was the day when Jesus rose from the dead. That was the day of redemption. So, I've had to skip over Hippolytus. I might deal with him some other time. But I just want to draw a few things together, and we'll finish off. It was back in 2009 that I first started really digging into church history. I started reading the early church fathers, and I read about the gatherings of these first Christians. And it was also the same year that I went on pilgrimage to Rome, to the Eternal City. And as part of my pilgrimage, I got to visit the catacombs of San Callisto, which are on the edge of the city. And honestly, I was a little disappointed. It was all a bit too well-lit, safe, clean. <laughs> they got rid of all of the bodies. There wasn't a skull in sight. Oh, dear. I'm not sure if it's just a boy thing or I am particularly macabre. But yeah, I was a bit disappointed. At least until the end of our tour. And our group was ushered into another part of the catacombs. And we were led to this very small chamber. We all fitted into it just about. And there was also a small stone table there with an oil lamp on it. And in hushed silence, we just stood there for a minute or two. And then our priest appeared, fully vested. And then he began to celebrate the Eucharist. Now there, in the catacombs of Rome, by the light of an oil lamp, you, know, you could practically squint and just see everyone in tokens. It was really easy to imagine that we were those first Christians, those early Christians in Rome. Perhaps, perhaps we were celebrating the first yearly anniversary of the death of one of our luminaries, Justin the Philosopher. But if I hope you get nothing else out of tonight, it's that you don't need to go to Rome. You don't need to go to the catacombs. It's an amazing experience, and I loved it. But if you want to be connected to that, that ancient, nascent church, you don't need to do anything more than go to your local parish and celebrate your local liturgy, wherever you may be in the world. I hope you've enjoyed our little, very quick tour through early church history and liturgy. But as I said at the beginning, I didn't want tonight just to be about history lesson. I hope that this benefits your spiritual life, particularly the next time you go to Mass, you'll have an increased sensitivity to the liturgy, an appreciation for the forefathers in the faith who passed on the faith to us and shaped the liturgy that, that in which we participate. And finally, that you grow in love for Christ, His Church, and for the liturgy, which the Church has celebrated for 2,000 years, bringing us the Eucharist, which is the source and the summit of the Christian life. Thank you.